1 Samuel chapter 13. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear, and all, let all Israel, and, and all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to, Phil, to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Can we get the house lights up, please? And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the appointed time by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offerings here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished the offering, the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord. For, then, for if you had kept the commandment of the Lord, then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah and Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Orpha to the land of Shul. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company toward the border that looks down in the valley of Zebuin toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge of two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goats. So on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Well, if there's one word that could describe the last week that we've experienced, that word is obviously fear. It's fear that causes us to rush to the grocery store and try to buy as much hand sanitizer and toilet paper and food and all the supplies that we can. It's fear that causes us to cancel conventions and uh, sporting events and concerts and all different types of things like that. And in this case, it seems like that the fear is for some good reason. This virus that we're experiencing here, the coronavirus, 
appears to be very contagious. The mortality rate is much, much higher than other illnesses that are common. Uh, we don't know exactly what that rate is, but it could be two, three, who knows, could be less. We just don't really know at this point. And so it's a potential danger, a huge danger of swapping through and having many people infected could cause thousands of deaths. So it's something to be concerned about. It's a legitimate concern. But I'd like to, to submit to you today that it's not the only thing that we need to fear. There's much more things that we need to fear. For example, all of us here in the United States have a 1% chance of dying of opioid addiction. We have a 1.1% chance of dying of suicide. We have a 1% chance we'll die in a motor vehicle accident. We have a 14% chance that we'll die of cancer. And we have over a 16% chance that we'll die of heart disease. And the kicker is that 100% of us will die for some reason, one out of every one person. So that's the encouragement that I have for you today. Have a great day. <laughs> Hope you enjoy church today. But that's not to minimize the, the danger and the fear that we're experiencing today. It's a scary situation, and it's scary not just because of the number of deaths that it's caused or the illnesses that it's caused or will cause, but it's scary because it reminds us, it's a wake-up call to the fact that we're vulnerable. It's a wake-up call to the fact that each day could be our last day. I mean, even before this virus, that was the case, but this even brings it more to the forefront that each day could be our last. And as a country, I think that we have a real problem with dealing with fear and uncertainty because it's something we're not really familiar with. And so if we have something that we're fearful of, we try to either uh, eliminate that source of fear, or if we can't eliminate it, then we try to minimize it. So we've done a good job of eliminating many sources of fear. In our country, the infant mortality rate is very low. The life expectancy is very high. Uh, we have antibiotics that can heal diseases that in years past might have taken our lives. We have vaccines that protect us from deadly diseases. And so we have all these things that insulate us from that fear. And if we do experience fear, if there's things that we can't control, then we try to minimize them. You know, we go to a funeral of a loved one and, you know, maybe we think to ourselves, well, that person died, but I'm a young person, or I don't have any health difficulties, or I, I have some time left, or when something senseless or uncertain happens, we try to make sense of those kind of events. You know, you think about Kobe Bryant dying uh, about a month or a month and a half, whenever that was, you know, dying in kind of a senseless accident, you know, uh, helicopter crash, don't know exactly why it happened. Um, but after that, it was like it wasn't enough that it was an accident. It was like somebody had to do something wrong. It was, and then they were trying to figure out, did the, this pilot do something wrong? And they tried to make, uh, give some kind of semblance of, order to this death that if if they did something wrong then maybe we can prevent it in the future and then we have this reason that you know we don't have to be afraid because this person did something wrong if we don't do something wrong we're going to be safe so we try to eliminate the source of danger and if we can't eliminate it we try to minimize it and we we know that one day we'll die but we push that to the back of our minds and we think it's always 
a ways off. We don't need to think about it now. And so we try to minimize that risk or that feeling of danger around us. But danger is always around us. It's always present with us. Like Phil said, every day is uncertain. Whether it's this virus or other things that could take our life, each day is a gift from God, and each day is filled with uncertainty. The rest of the world, especially in third world countries, they've had to wrestle with this fear and uncertainty and deal with it more than we have. For example, there's 12 countries in the world today where children, uh, 20% of children will not make it to their fifth birthday. There are 21, uh, 21 countries, according to the UN, in the world today where the life expectancy is 60 or below. About 1.6 million uh, people died in 2017 for pre from preventable diseases like diarrhea. Each day, millions of Christians face persecution and the threat of death and have to live with that danger. North Korea, if you're discovered to be a Christian, you would be sent to a gulag, a forced labor camp, and worked to the bone, maybe even to death. In Afghanistan, you'd either be beaten, killed, or sent to a mental institution if it was discovered that you're a Christian. In Maldives, it may mean losing your citizenship. In Libya, it could mean being held in a detention center, perhaps being sold to human traffickers. So the other third world has had more experience dealing with that fear and uncertainty. And as Americans living uh, in the world that we live in, we haven't had to wrestle with that fear and uncertainty as much until now. And so the question is, what do we do with that fear? What do we do with that uncertainty? Because the truth is, if we allow fear to grow rampant, fear can consume us. And fear can cause us to do very, very bad things. In his book, Fearless, Max Lucado writes about the power of fear to turn us into uh, beastly people. He says, fear turns us into control freaks. For fear at its center is a perceived loss of control. When life spins wildly, we grab for a component of life we can manage. Our diet, the tidiness of our home, the armrests of a plane, or in many cases, people. The more insecure we feel, the meaner we become. We growl and bare our fangs. Why? Because we are bad, in part. But we also, it's also because we feel cornered. He writes, Martin Niemöller documents an extreme example of this. He was a German pastor who took a heroic stand against Adolf Hitler. When he first met the dictator in 1933, Niemöller stood at the back of the room and listened. Later, when, he asked, when his wife asked him what he'd learned, he said, I discovered that Herr Hitler is a terribly frightened man. Lucada writes, fear releases the tyrant within. So fear has the potential to consume us, the potential to treat others poorly, but it also has the potential to deepen our faith. It also has the potential to point us closer to Jesus, to deepen our relationship with God. And the passage that we're looking at today, to the people of Israel are terrified. Saul brings together 3,000 troops, and then 1,000 of those troops are sent to a Philistine garrison where Jonathan goes and attacks that garrison. And as a result, 
Jonathan kind of pokes the bear, so to speak, and he unleashes the rage of the Philistines. And the Philistines, it says in the text, uh, the Israelites became a stench to the Philistines. And so they are hell-bent on attacking the Israelites with all the power that they have. And so the Israelites, Saul calls his army to arms. as He calls his people to come together to Gilgal. But they come together and probably just a few thousand people, but the Philistines come together and it says in the text they had 30,000 chariots. They have 6,000 horsemen and troops. It says in the text that the people were like the sand on the seashore. Not only that, we're told later in the text that the Israelites don't have any blacksmith among them. And so they don't have any swords or armor. The only thing they have is axes and sickles and stuff for agricultural work. It says in verse 22, So on the day of battle there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan and his son had them. So we have a situation where the Philistines are dramatically... Uh, greater in in terms of their army, in terms of their personnel, in terms of their equipment. And it's almost humorous as the Israelites are coming out to battle with their agricultural equipment, their axes, their sickles to fight against this vastly superior army. And it says in the text, the Israelites were terrified because of this. And many of them run to hide. They run to caves and cisterns and rocks and holes. Those who were brave followed after Saul, but they followed after him trembling. And as a nation, we may feel the same way. As a nation, we see and know that trouble is coming. And maybe we feel a little bit like those Israelites who are hiding in caves and rocks as we hide in our homes to prevent the spread of this illness. And as a nation, maybe it feels like we don't have any weapon to fight against this enemy. And feel like the Israelites did, that they just had agricultural equipment. We do the best we can, but we don't have many weapons to fight against this enemy that's coming. I was reading an article about the uh, coronavirus, and they were specifically talking about people buying toilet paper, even though uh, most people that have coronavirus don't have uh, GI symptoms. And they were talking about that, and uh, the, I think it was a psychologist who wrote the article, and basically it was saying that the reason that we go out and buy toilet paper is because it makes us feel like we have control of something. You know, we can't control the spread of the disease. You know, we do our best to do that, but buying toilet paper or buying hand sanitizer, it makes us feel like we have some kind of control over it. So what do we see Paul do, or Saul do in this passage? Saul stays at Gilgal and he waits for seven days. He waits seven days because uh, Samuel told him to wait for seven days. Most likely the reason that he was waiting there was because he was waiting for Samuel, the prophet of God, to come and declare God's will to him. And so he waits for seven days. It appears like he's doing the right thing, and yet Samuel doesn't arrive. The troops are dispersing, and so Saul decides he has to take matters into his own hands. Most likely on the seventh day itself, Saul decides to go and sacrifice himself and to try to seek God's favor on his own rather than hearing from God. And as a result of this disobedience, Samuel tells Saul that his kingdom will be no more. His kingdom will be stripped from him. And I think this passage teaches us a couple lessons. 
The first lesson that it teaches us is that we need to keep obeying God even when it seems like God is not moving. We need to keep obeying God even when it seems like the enemy is winning. As a country, we face a difficult journey ahead of us. We don't know how long this crisis will last, hopefully sooner rather than longer, but we don't know how long it's going to last. And at the beginning, it's maybe popular to quote Bible verses and make expressions of faith, but what happens as time goes on? What happens if the victory comes, doesn't come for a while? Because Saul did the right thing at the beginning. He was seeking after the heart of God, but when time went on and it seemed like things were going the wrong direction, then he gave up and went his own way, took matters into his own hand. We need to be careful that we don't do the same things because, again, fear unchecked can make us do some crazy things. We need to make sure that as Christians, we're people who are defined by love. Things like this, viruses, epidemics like this, can there's a risk in that of making us see other people as being the enemy. You know, we do things out of prudence, of cautious, that are good things like these social distancing measures and you know, refraining from handshakes and those kind of things, which are good things and things that we should do. But there's a danger in that in seeing other people as the enemy and maybe even after this is all over, continuing to have suspicion and fear towards those around us. Maybe it's starting to have stereotypes towards certain types of people who we think may be more likely to be carriers. And of course, we should be cautious. Of course, we should be prudent. But let's not let our prudence cause us to not love all those around us. 1527, the bubonic plague was going through uh, Wittenberg, the city where Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses. And as it was coming through, uh, the, the bubonic plague is... Uh, it makes coronavirus look very small because, I mean, the number of people who die from bubonic plague is about 80%, and they say that about 30 to 60% of Europe's population was decimated by this bubonic plague. So, you know, very, very deadly, even more so than what we're experiencing today. And pastors urged Martin Luther to leave his post in Wittenberg and go somewhere else. And... He didn't leave. And then they were asking, so can you give a statement or give some explanation of what you're doing? And then he put out an open letter that was called, Whether One, he entitled it, Whether One May Flee a Deadly Plague. And he responds in part by saying, not what would Jesus do, but he says, but what would we do if the sick were Jesus? He says this, this I well know that if it were Christ or his mother who were laid low by illness, everybody would be so solicitous and would gladly become a servant and a helper. Everyone would want to be bold and fearless. Nobody would flee, but everyone would come running. If you wish to serve Christ and to wait on him very well, you have your sick neighbor close in hand. Go to him and serve him, and you will surely find Christ in him. Now Luther goes on to say that it is okay for some people to flee from that coming illness. But some, he says, should stay. Some who need, the, the sick need to care for them. And in sharing that story, I'm not in any way suggesting that we shouldn't take every possible precaution to, spread, to prevent the spread of this disease. 
We certainly should not be foolish, but we also should not forget who the victims or potential victims are. We should not forget that all of us are made in the image of God and loved by God. And just because we're in the midst of a crisis doesn't mean that we can forget Christ's command to love those around us. Now, of course, loving those around us could look differently. You know, loving those around us, you know, today might not mean going and giving them a hug and a kiss on the cheek. Loving those around us might mean separating for a time from them. So love can take different nuances, but we have to be careful we don't get to a place where we forget Jesus' command and we just become concerned about protecting ourselves and we don't care what happens to those around us. Because we can't forget God's word just because we're in a crisis. All of us are made in the image of God. And the truth is, as I was talking to someone this week, and he was saying, as a culture, we're made for this kind of thing. You know, we have everything in our resources. We are interconnected through technology and, and all the structures that we have in our society to show love to those around us, even if we don't see them in person. And so we can love those around us without even being in their presence. So let's not forget that command of Jesus. We can send an encouraging text or email. We can do something old school like talking on the phone. We can give someone toilet paper if we have extra even. So let's not call, forget the call to love in the midst of this circumstance. But secondly, this passage reminds us that we need to continue to have faith, continue to believe in the goodness of God, even when it seems like all around us is darkness. Saul doesn't see a way out. People are defecting. Seems like the enemy is too strong for him, but only if he would have waited. If only he would have held on for just a little bit longer, if only he would have persevered in his faith for just a few more minutes, a few more hours. Because we know in the text that Samuel was coming. Apparently it seems like it was on the seventh day because as soon as Saul was done with the sacrifice, there Samuel is. And he's coming to give the sacrifice to speak to Saul the word of God. If only he would have continued in the faith. The text tells us if he would have continued in the faith, God would have made him a king forever. His line would have been uh, in the kingship forever. Likewise, for those of us who believe in Jesus, there's a reward that's promised for us. But we must persevere. We must keep believing in the goodness of God. And in circumstances like this, the gospel can provide us with enormous hope, an enormous purpose. And as Christians, we are better equipped to deal with a crisis like this than anybody else on the face of the planet because we have God's word and we believe in God's promises. In a time like this, there are a number of promises that we can hold on to, that we can believe in. The first truth is that God is not surprised by what is happening. The scriptures say in Isaiah 46, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient things not yet done, saying, my counsels shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. I think the last week caught a lot of us by surprise, certainly caught me by surprise. I never thought last week that we would be in the situation that we're in now. 
You know, it became really real when, you know, the NBA and March Madness and all these things started, you know, closing up and canceling. And I think that's the case for a lot of us. Nobody saw this coming, but God knew it was coming. Before we were even born, God knew that this was going to happen, and he knows how it's going to end. He knew what was going to happen last week. He knows what's going to happen this week. Nothing catches God by surprise. The second thing that we can hold on to is the truth that we will not be defeated. Revelations 21, 3-7 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and the death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. There's no enemy, there's no disease that can stand before King Jesus. And for those of us who are believers in Jesus, there is a promise that there is a world that Jesus is creating where there'll be no more death, there'll be no more sorrow, there'll be no more disease, there'll be no more fear. And that's the world that God has in store for those of us who are believers, a world that is completely new. So we have that hope that we will not be defeated. Third, we have the hope that we no longer need to fear death. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 58 says this, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We don't need to fear death like the world fears death because we know that as believers the sting of death is removed. We know that when we die, we'll be transported into the presence of God. And that's the worst thing. The worst thing that can happen to us is that we would die and then we get to heaven. That's not that bad. It's better than anything we could experience on this earth. Author Peter Kraft asks us to imagine the day when sin, death, and evil are finally defeated by Christ. He said, suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future and you saw with indubitable certainty that everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, you ha- could have for free for asking your whole crazy heart's deepest desire. Heaven, eternal joy. He says, would you not return fearless and singing? What can earth do to you if you're guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny. Less, a scratch on a penny. So we have that hope. We no longer need to, need to fear death. We finally have the hope that we can have the assurance that nothing can separate us from God's love. Romans eight thirty five to 39 says this, What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We might not know what the future holds, but we can know and have the confidence that God will be with us every step of the way. That he's promised he'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us. He's promised that he won't allow anything in our lives that he won't use for our good and for his glory. So that's some of the hope that we can draw on as believers in Jesus Christ. But it's hard sometimes when we're in the midst of the darkness. There's an old pastor named uh, Garden Taylor. He was pastor in New York City and professor or did lectures at Harvard Divinity School. And he told the story of how one time he was preaching in Louisiana. It was a small black church, and this was during the Depression era. And they were st just starting to get electricity in that particular church. And so in the sanctuary, they had one light with a, just a string that came down with one light bulb to, to light the whole sanctuary. And so he got up and he started preaching. And as he started preaching, the light went out. And he was a very young uh, preacher. He hadn't preached many sermons before. And he's like, now what am I going to do? I don't have my notes. Nobody can see me. So he kind of stumbled along in the dark. But then uh, one of the deacons of the church cried out and she said, preach on, preacher. We can still see Jesus in the dark. She said, we can still see Jesus in the dark. The question is, can we still, still see Jesus in the dark? Can we still see Jesus when it seems like all the institutions and all the things that we've trusted in are falling? Can we still see Jesus in that darkness? Helen Keller once said this, Faith is the strength by which a shattered world shall emerge into light. Faith is the strength by which a shattered world shall emerge into light. Here's the thing I want us to leave with today. Fear will always be with us, but faith will always sustain us. Fear will always be with us, but faith will always sustain us. In the fallen world that we live in, there are a number of reasons to fear. And right now, the biggest one that we have is this outbreak, this virus. Something to fear. But even after that is over, there will be other things to fear. But even if those things are greater than this experience we're experiencing now, we'll still have faith. And that faith will sustain us. And that faith will keep us going in the midst of any hardship that we might face. Because faith reminds us that God's not surprised by what's happening. Faith reminds us that we will not be defeated. Faith reminds us that we no longer need to fear death. And faith reminds us that God is with us in the midst of the darkness, that he walks with us, that there's nothing that can separate us from his love. Fear will always be with us, but faith will always sustain us. So maybe you're here today or maybe you're listening online and maybe the reason that you're listening or maybe the reason that you're here is because you're afraid. You know, maybe it started to make you think about the fact that all of us are vulnerable, that all of us could step into eternity at any moment. Now, I can't promise you that coming to Christ will protect you from the things of this world, the, the fears that we have. I can't promise you that you'll be protected if you come to Christ. But I can tell you that if you come to Christ, fear doesn't have to overwhelm you. 
Fear doesn't have to consume you because we have a hope beyond what we see. We have the hope of a God who loves us unconditionally. God who loves us more than we can imagine, who is working all things for his good, for our good and his glory. If you're here and you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, God can't send his son Jesus to the earth so that we wouldn't have to experience things like this. We wouldn't have to experience the fear and, and, and the angst of not knowing where we're going to end up because as Christians, we know where we're going to end up. And so Jesus came to the earth. He died on the cross to take our penalty, to take the punishment that we deserve, to take our sin so we would no longer have to fear the things of this world. We would no longer have to fear the things of this afterlife and that we'd have a relationship with God that starts today and goes on to eternity. That kind of faith, that kind of relationship with God can sustain us through any challenge. At this time, I'm going to ask that every head bowed and every eye closed. If you're here, you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and maybe today is the day that you'd want to do that. Maybe today is the day that you would want to give him your life, that you'd put your life into his hands. If you'd like to do that, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything, but just invite you to pray a prayer like this, like this after me. It's not a magical prayer. It's a, just an expression of your heart to God and the beginning of your relationship with him. Say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm broken. I know that in and of myself, I can't save myself. But I believe that you came to the earth and died on the cross for me so that I could have a relationship with you. God, I turn from my sin today. I turn from trying to do things myself. Lord, I give you my life today. I give you my fears. I give you my hopes. I give you my dreams. Say in your heart, God, I want to walk with you even in the midst of darkness. In Jesus' name. You can raise, raise your eyes at this point. I'd like to close by reading a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. And, and just as a side, if you prayed that prayer, I'd love to talk with you more about that if you have any questions or we can pray for you. Martin Luther King Jr. once said this. He said, This faith transforms a whirlwind of despair into a warm and revising breeze of hope. He said, the words of a motto which a generation ago were commonly found in the wall in the homes of devout persons need to be etched on our hearts. The plaque said this, fear knocked at the door. Faith answered. There was no one there. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would be people of faith in the midst of darkness, that we would see you even in the midst of darkness. Lord, I pray that our faith would sustain us during this time, no matter what the future holds. Lord, we pray for a quick resolution of this crisis. But Lord, no matter what the future holds, we pray that you'd sustain us by your grace because we know this didn't catch you by surprise. We know that we are victors in you, that you've prepared for us a place that cannot be taken away from us, a place without sickness and disease and hurt. We know that there's nothing that can separate us from your love. Lord, we pray that we would live in that reality and that truth as we live our lives. In Christ's name I pray, amen.